Hi, my name is Amar. I'm a senior econ student at Case Western. Hi, everyone. My name is Zach, and I'm a first-year medical student at the CUNY School of Medicine. And welcome to the MSX Podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn from their insight and expertise. This week, we have Dr. Shriya Srinivasan. She is a Smith Science Fellow and Junior Fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. She graduated from Case Western Reserve University with a BS in Biomedical Engineering with a concentration in Biomaterials. She also received her doctoral degree in Medical Engineering and Medical Physics through the Harvard-MIT Health Sciences and Technology Program. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Shriya, would love to learn more about what your current research interests are. Sure. So my current research focuses on neural interfaces for gastrointestinal neuromodulation. So, you know, the fundamental questions here are how can we speak to the gut, the nerves of the gut, um, and communicate information to them, but also listen to them and, and understand what is happening in the GI tract. And this is really important for a variety of diseases, everything from GERD or, you know, reflux, acid reflux, all the way to things like gastroparesis, where you have paralysis of the stomach, uh, which is a very prevalent problem and prevents, uh, you know, proper nutrition and digestion for hundreds, hundreds of thousands of folks um, across the United States and all over the world. And so that's, that's my current research focus. And prior to that, I had worked on developing a new surgical paradigm for amputation that would allow patients to be able to send efferent control commands to command a prosthesis and its movement, but also feel what the prosthesis was moving or how the prosthesis was moving naturally um, through native neural pathways um, to be able to really have great sensory motor control and integrate these sorts of devices um, into their daily lives and daily movements. And I'd also love to you know, go back to the super early days uh, of what got you interested in science and if there's some formative experience in your childhood that piqued your interest and sparked your curiosity that you could share? Yeah, so, you know, thinking back, there were really a couple key events that I think played the largest influences uh, in, my, in my career path and in my interest in med tech and healthcare. I had had both grandfathers uh, go through the last about decade of their lives with severe diseases. Um, one required chronic uh, peritoneal dialysis about for, for about the last decade of his life. And, and the other uh, grandfather suffered from a very rare form of ALS. And, um, you know, the sensory motor deficits and kind of the burden to his own daily life, but also the people around him, I think, made a very formative influence. Um, and it wasn't until later that I really recognized these. Um, I'd spent some time shadowing in clinics, uh, working at various nonprofits to fix old medical equipment. Uh, I'd spent time at a free clinic, uh, the free clinic of Greater Cleveland, as well as various clinics in, in India and hospitals thereof. Um, and throughout all these experiences, I saw you know, a couple of things. One, there's a huge gap between where we where technology is today and the state of healthcare. So we have very fancy devices, consumer tech in our homes, right? Yeah, so many things now stream data straight to the cloud. Um, a lot of uh, 
capacities are actuated, automated, robotic. Um, we almost have a computer sitting in our hands in, in the form of a phone. And yet <clears throat> in the healthcare space, the integration of technology, I would say is at least a decade behind. Um, and so the quality of care that we're able to provide, I think is limited by these. And so, you know, coupling these sort of observations with what I'd experienced as a child growing up, seeing, seeing family members go through this, I think there was a deep sense of motivation and drive and almost duty to really fix some of these challenges that I was seeing. Um, going along with this and, and coupled with this was, you know, as a child, my parents had really encouraged me to play with a lot of things. You know, I, I remember having Legos around the house, connects, building blocks, um, routinely, we'd take apart common household appliances and um, in some cases fix them and put them back together and in many cases not. But all of those were a great experience in, in tinkering. Um, and I think that started to grow my passion for engineering and really hands-on type of uh, types of work. And so I, if, I, if I had to point to a few things, I think it's those that really built the foundation for engineering and specifically biomedical engineering. You uh, touched on this for a second, and I was curious in your thoughts on this uh, about the availability of prosthetics. I was wondering what you thought could be done to make newer and high cost medical technologies more accessible for those that are especially underprivileged and uh, disadvantaged. Great, great question. This is a huge issue, not only in the United States, uh, but especially in developing nations. Uh, access to technology, especially medical tech, um, is limited by cost constraints, distribution constraints, but also in, in many cases, um, the knowledge to actually use these devices or have clinical specialties that are trained enough to implement um, large-scale programs that avail uh, more advanced standards of care and standards of technology. Towards this end, you know, in the last few years, I've actually um, spun off a nonprofit from some of my work at MIT, wherein we're addressing this challenge, you know, access to med tech. Um, the foundation's called the Project Prana Foundation. Over the last year and a half, we brought to market a ventilator multiplexer for COVID. Um, before that, I'd worked on some other projects as well in the global health space. And I think there's a lot of barriers there that need attention, that need to be solved. Um, some of these can be done through creative engineering, uh, cost reduction, you know, the development and um, I guess evolution of better materials and processes. But in many cases, I think it's also the cooperation from government entities, um, the reduction of bureaucracy, corruption, um, the willingness of an entire infrastructure between government, the private, and the public sectors to come together to solve some of these challenges uh, with respect to access. Um, so, you know, zooming in specifically on prosthetics, which is where you had, had asked about. Um, prosthetics are one space specifically in which you either have a very low tech, low function option, or a very high tech, high function option, uh, but also very high cost. Um, and we are yet to see that scale uh, very efficiently. There are a few startups um, that I know of, Vispala, for example, Symbionic is another one. There's one in um, Mexico called Protesia. Um, I worked previously with a group called Rise Legs in Bangalore. So there are a lot of young entrepreneurs and efforts being made to 
make good prosthetics available and accessible. Um, but, but it's a hard problem. I think many of these types of devices require very high level of sophistication and robustness. Um, they're used in everybody's, you know, daily kind of movement. So they undergo a lot of wear and tear um, and manufacturing at scale for a highly modular type of product is challenging. Um, prostheses are fit to patients on a one by one basis. The sockets have to be fit custom in most cases to the shape of the residuum for each patient. And so it's a tough challenge. Um, there are people making strides, but uh, we could certainly do more in that arena. Recently, uh, you got uh, some notoriety uh, for being in Forbes's list of the 35 innovators under 35. So we're just wondering what opportunities as a scientist does uh, something like this bring? I won the award while COVID was in full steam. So I haven't quite met my class or anything yet. I think the main uh, benefit uh, or kind of function or end result of, of winning an award like that is, you know, one, there's some recognition for your work, uh, which can help propel it and take it to the next stage. You also get to meet the community that uh, is, is also on the list. And I think that's Another nice thing where you're seeing other innovators, you can build bridges there, um, people work on projects together, and you start to feel a sense of community with the folks uh, that are making these sorts of uh, big strides and trying to take risks and build new businesses or build new concepts. And, and that support system can be really useful. It can also be really cool to just have a community to kind of think big with and, and lean on their experiences in, in cases where you're not that experienced. So who is the PhD path for and what are the characteristics of someone that separate, you know, PhD students from med students, from people who want to go straight into to, you know, healthcare industry? There's a lot of ways to <clears throat> participate in the healthcare ecosystem and a lot of ways to participate in healthcare innovation as well. I think Folks that are very interested in creating, thinking about problems and solving them uh, generally tend to go down more of the research path or the engineering path. Um, these folks are often well-suited for a PhD where they're willing to spend a chunk of time and solve one or you know, a small set of problems within the entire ecosystem. Folks that are more aligned with practice rather than implementation or creation often find themselves well-suited for the medical path, right? And, and they're able to be patient-facing and really spend time at the bedside treating patients. Um, not to say that they don't also participate in innovation, many of them do. Um, but generally I would say those that are willing to get a PhD are, are more on that side of creating and, and not necessarily having a day-to-day -day interaction with uh, patients or the medical system. I would say, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was, especially in some communities, a very strong focus and kind of push to go into the medical field to become a doctor. It was seen as a very stable career and, you know, everybody wanted to go down that pathway. Um, <clears throat> more and more, we see the protocolization of medicine. And what I, what I mean there is that a lot of the day-to-day -day practices have been scripted into these protocols that you are following. And for a variety of reasons and pressures from insurance, um, administration, reimbursement, right? 
we see um, the medical profession has changed a little bit in its, in its flavor and its operation. And so that's something to keep in mind, right? As you go about thinking that you want to have an impact in this field, there's many ways to do that. Uh, as much as I stress these two fields, right? So engineering and, and um, I guess, clinical medicine, I think there's also a really important role for entrepreneurs to play. And I think this is increasingly important for us if we want to bridge that gap between where technology stands in the clinic today and where it could be. Um, I think we need risk takers and uh, big thinkers and leaders to come in and take on some more of these projects and translate more of what we're finding in the academic sphere to the clinical sphere. Um, specifically with med tech, that can be a really long and risky process. A lot of devices fail um, and the journey is really long. Unlike software um, or consumer tech, you know, it could be 10, 15 years before you, you really bring a product to market in some cases. Um, but we need more of those folks as well. And I think that's a solid way to um, make a dent in the healthcare infrastructure. So similar to the, the change in the medical industry going to more like a protocol workflow, have there, any, have there been any major changes in the way that like science has been discovered? Yeah, absolutely. Over the last decade, I would say that there have been a set of changes and we see this evolving over time, of course, as our data collection and analyses um, or data collection analytical methods improve. So the first one that comes to mind is this idea of big data, right? And this was a big buzzword, but in many ways we saw it percolate through the research app, uh, sphere. And there's a big focus on high throughput methods, um, ways to go on a fishing expedition or do it with in a hypothesis-driven format, but nevertheless a fishing expedition. Um, there are now great ways to do very high volumes of data analysis or experimental analysis um, because of the robotic tools that we have, the computational tools that we have that can massively multiplex the processes that were once done, you know, one at a time or 10 at a time manually. And so that's been a very cool shift to see. It's made a lot more data available to us um, and has really broken some walls that we were having in terms of the types of problems we could approach with a given set of experimental methods. Another wave I'm starting to see and, and has been occurring is of course the machine learning and the AI wave. Um, we're trying to approach methods from that angle as well or think about, you know, is there another computational algorithmic layer here that from which we can derive insights that we otherwise wouldn't? And so, you know, th there's multiple trends like this, but I would say, of course, I think academic research and methods thereof uh, have been evolving. Yeah. So from what you've been talking about, it seems like your work requires a lot of collaboration with uh, inter interdisciplinary teams and with a product uh, that ends up as a surgical innovation, such as your prosthetics, we were wondering how do you bridge the gap between blueprint to working prototype and a working product? Yeah. So the type of research I do, uh, as well as much of, I would say, healthcare med tech type research, biomedical research, really does require not only interdisciplinary, but transdisciplinary teams um, where the stakeholders are all being considered in one holistic process as opposed to indiv individual silos. And 
wherein there is co-creation happening from various parties from the get-go. So it should not be the case that engineers are developing a tool and handing it off to clinicians. Rather, the engineers and the clinicians should co-create, co-test, and then co-implement. And I think that process of thinking through things from the, from the get-go uh, prevents these teams from falling into the you know, classical gaps of understanding and um, ch practical challenges that you know, often one side can't see from the other. Um, so in terms of bringing a surgical innovation from you know, a preclinical benchtop model to the bedside, we collaborated with surgeons from day one. Right from the time that on the whiteboard we had designs being drawn up, we had surgeons in the room, we had consulted with rehab specialists, prosthetists. So everybody in the patient pathway um, that, that would be seen for somebody that say had an amputation all the way to when they're fit with the limb, they go through rehab and they're back on their feet, for example. Um, and so you know, from ideation all the way through benchtop tests, cadaver models, animal models, and then into humans, we've been working side by side. Um, and, and doing that has really helped. It's also helped close loops in communication and understanding with our patients um, when we have that sort of seamless structure. One of the things that I was really pleased to see and, and um, observe was that after we had started clinical trials, in some cases, patients were facing challenges with certain, certain issues, right? And these might come up when they're at the prosthetist or when they're at this, you know, at the surgeon for a, a surgeon's clinic for a checkup. Having the ability to communicate and um, triangulate those problems allowed us to actually learn a lot of things that we then took back and put into our surgical design step to iterate um, and improve there. Uh, so, you know, bottom line is like, yes, people do need to really work in interdisciplinary teams. Um, and it has so many benefits all across the board um, for both the people involved as well as the end users. And uh, for anyone, uh, any young people that are ambitious and they want to do something similar, uh, we were just wondering how do you kind of bring all those minds together and what are some of those challenges that arise? Yeah. So if you're in school, I would highly recommend that you take courses um, in whatever allied fields you plan to uh, pursue projects in. For example, if you are an engineering student and you want to work in, in med tech, go sit in on some medical school classes or some nursing school classes, interact with the professors there, with the students there, become friends with the students there. They are a strong and powerful way to network into that community um, and ultimately may end up being your colleagues. So I think, you know, that, that's a big piece of it. So challenges when you're working with an interdisciplinary team often arise uh, where understanding starts to um, approach onto like that gap between fields, right? And so oftentimes folks are talking about the same thing, but with very different uh, vocabularies and having the expertise to really bridge those lexicons can be important. I think it can also be a challenge to think about hierarchies and power dynamics and, and team working cultures um, when you start to go between fields. So just to give you a very practical example, um, the medical system, medical students, to residents, to attendings, to you know, chiefs, that's a very you know, set hierarchical kind of structure. In the engineering world, things don't often operate in such a set framework. 
Um, and so who you approach when, how do you talk to certain people in the, you know, chain of command, all of those things can be uh, points for friction and just have to be navigated deftly um, to make these sorts of big team collaborations move uh, smoothly. But, you know, as I mentioned before, if you spend a little bit of time in that other community, in those classes or with those sorts of folks, it's easy to catch on and kind of adapt. And obviously everybody wants to help and make an impact. And so it's just a matter of um, having those conversations at the right times and, and working through those challenges. Another follow-up was just like, what do you think that those different sectors can learn from one another in your time that you've experienced? When we go to develop a solution for a certain problem, from the engineering realm, it can sometimes be hard to know exactly what the practical challenges are on the ground when a clinician is prescribing a product or therapeutic to a patient. Um, it's without experiencing it firsthand, it can be hard to actually imagine what that workflow looks like day in and day out at a clinic or in an operating room or in the emergency room. And so when we're designing products, like having that end user feedback um, and really living and breathing that scenario uh, can be immensely valuable. And I think that's something the engineering community needs to do a better job of learning. Um, on the flip side, in the medical world, I think exposure to just the volume of technology and, and honestly, like basic science advancements could help them ideate and get a sense for what types of devices could be made available to them and, and help to bridge that gap. I think sometimes they're just so busy or, or um, don't really have exposure to what's going on in the science and engineering worlds that it's hard to see. Um, and so pathways or programs to help bridge those gaps, I think would be helpful. And so having worked across a lot of these collaborative teams, I'd love to learn more about what's the next like technology that you get the most excited about in the next decade? I have to say, I think there's a lot of really cool things on the horizon. Ingestible electronics, biosensors seem to be very exciting to me. Um, products that can sense and then modulate our microbiome, those also seem very exciting. Uh, of course, I have a bias for neural technologies. And so there has been hype in the, in the market, but I think there are a lot of products um, on the way that will allow us if not in the next five to 10, definitely in the next 10 to 20 years to be able to tap into the volume of data that's out there in a more naturalistic, seamless manner and really be able to do more with that data neurally. Um, so I'm excited to see some of those uh, come to fruition. Tria, as we're about to close, um, we were just wondering if you have any parting advice for uh, any young professionals that are trying to do something similar to you or just trying to find you know, what they're interested in uh, in general. Just leave us with that. Yeah, MedTech is super cool. It's been a really, really fun place to learn, explore, create and implement and can be a very, very meaningful and rewarding experience when you're able to have an impact. And so to everybody out there that's uh, you know, just on the start of a path in this kind of a field, dream big. I think there's a lot of resources and people interested in, in helping you out on the way. Um, make uh, strong networks uh, between people that aren't in your field 
um, as well as those that are in your field to be able to bridge those gaps that are often the bottlenecks for why these innovations aren't already available today. Um, and finally, I would say, think holistically about the um, challenges you want to go solve and, and pick really big ones in the field and, and go after them. I, I think uh, we can always shoot for the stars, right? Um, and, and that sort of a ambitious perspective can really help us um, get really far in, in these sorts of fields. So that would be my advice to folks 